Hello and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next 50 years. Check out our website and thought leadership at biotech2050.com. I'm today's host, Alok Tai. I'm the VP of Life Sciences at Ignite, and we're a secure content platform focused on key global industries. Today, I'm really excited to have with us Raman Segal, the founder of Remarketing. Raman, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Alok. Pleasure to be here. Really excited to have you on, and he's a, an expert in both marketing and, and digital technology and strategy, specifically focused on the contract services industry. So really excited to have you on today, but maybe to kick us off, would love if you could maybe give us a quick intro on your background and, and how you got to where you are today. Sure. So I kind of fell into the life sciences sector maybe 20 years ago, uh, showed my age <laughs> a little bit. So my background was in marketing, and the first ever job that I had was in an agency where the first client I was given was a contract manufacturing organization in the UK. It actually just sent me down a route into just being absolutely fascinated by drug development and clinical trials and then the pharmaceutical sector and then the biotech sector and ultimately led me to start a company in 2009 uh, when I founded Remarketing. And since that, kind of 10 years on this month, in fact. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, I had a lot more hair back in those days. <laughs> We've grown to be an international design digital content agency that specializes in the pharma and biotech space. We have a particular focus in the contract services space within drug development which is kind of a very growing part of the global pharma and biotech market, kind of the outsourcing space, which is where we focus the majority of our efforts helping clients uh, raise their profile, generate leads, you know, professionalize and, and that type of thing. Now, as you guys have developed a set of services and capabilities at this unique intersection of digital technology, contract services, and pharmaceutical or biopharmaceutical buyers. What are some of the unique aspects of working in and developing services and technologies for this industry compared to other verticals that you might have had exposure to? Sure. So it's a very complicated sector. It's full of complexity from a sponsored drug development perspective to into the vendor market. And actually, knock-on effect for service providers like us, it's a highly confidential sector. I mean, we don't do a huge amount on the patient side of the, the industry, but that's an incredibly mm. regulated market as well. So it can be quite cumbersome and it can be quite slow at times. Now, <laughs> when we when we first started, we worked um, in multiple sectors in retail and automotive, for instance. And what is quite stark was how receptive other sectors are to technology and mm. to adopting new ways of working much quicker, whereas certainly in the last decade or so, maybe even longer, the pharma and biotech sector is generally a little bit slower in adopting particularly digital technologies, mm-hmm. uh, but also just trying new new things because of the regulations, because you're dealing with people's health. Naturally, there is a, a reluctance to do that. But I mean, complexity itself is a really interesting subject. And um, we see a lot of clients and also sponsors trying to find ways to reduce complexity in drug development. Mm. Uh, and I certainly think that's going to be a key focus for the sector in the next 10, 20, 30 years. Absolutely. You know, it, it certainly sounds like the broad theme of complexity, as you sort of identified it, leads into not only the activities that one needs to do, but also the timelines. And so I'm curious, like in a prior life and remarketing's early years have seen multiple different industries like automotive, like technology. And even today, I know you guys have some say technology customers, Mm -hmm. but how have you sort of started to see aspects of that complexity get ameliorated by leveraging technologies or observations from other industries? I mean, I, I live in Boston and, and work in Cambridge now, and despite my accent. And uh, <laughs> what's been really interesting is seeing uh, more entrepreneurial-driven 
mm. particularly biotech companies who have a very different mindset to you know your traditional big pharma companies so i certainly think there is a much greater appetite than mm -hmm. ever before to to work out how to reduce those timelines of drug development and bring drugs to market quicker to help patients, particularly in the kind of orphan and red disease space, mm -hmm. which has got smaller kind of patient populations who have a lot of unmet medical needs. There's definitely a greater desire to adopt faster ways of working and smarter technologies in order to get to market mm. quicker. And I think that's, they will drive the industry forward, that type of technology. And if you look at your process of, booking a cab from how we used to do it <laughs> used to go to the yellow pages or you know whatever and find a cab number and then mm -hmm. pick up your old fixed handset yeah. <laughs> and, and dial the numbers yeah. you know versus you know now you pick up your smartphone and you press uber and you're done in two seconds and your uber arrives i think that's a really interesting analogy for what i think will happen in the sector maybe not that level of disruption but nevertheless seeing that shift from how things used to be to how things are now, which we've seen in all aspects of our life. But drug development in particular seems to lag behind. Right. You know, it seems to take a decade to develop a drug product mm -hmm. and billions of dollars. And it doesn't seem efficient to me, right? It seems like there's too much complexity and there's too many hurdles. And rightly so from a regulatory perspective. But the industry can't just keep burning dollars, right? It has to get smarter. And Uber's a really interesting one because, you know, you hear a lot, you read a lot of articles and sound bites about the likes of Amazon and mm -hmm. in looking at the, or Apple looking at particularly the medical technology space, but actually just coming into the sector and trying to get a bite of the sector. And mm -hmm. I always look at Uber and think, and Uber have done something, you know, they're doing freight now in terms of taking over the logistics industry and in, in mm -hmm. efficiency. And I always wonder, you know, are Uber looking at this sector thinking, we can transfer data much quicker. We can get things done much quicker. Yeah, yeah. If we can cut the timelines um, of drug development using our technologies and our, you know, clever people in San Francisco, that's something that I think a lot of the, the bigger companies in the industry need to be aware of that these really innovative tech companies, uh, certainly on the West Coast, are capable of entering the sector and disrupting the sector, which I have to say is, is a good thing because it naturally will lead to greater levels of innovation and more drugs coming to market and helping you know patients and our families, which is ultimately what, <laughs> what it's all about. Yeah, for sure. You know, there's one thing that I want to touch upon that you sort of alluded to in your intro, which is you're originally from the UK. Your organization has a big presence and, and office there, and but you now are sort of building up the US branch, I guess, of your firm. When it comes to the mindset, right, which you've described being different now than, say, 10 years ago in the life sciences industry, this entrepreneurial theme that you cited, how are you starting to see that play out on different sides of the pond? Do you see a different mentality and attitude in the UK amongst the biotech industry there versus here in Cambridge or in the greater US? Or do you feel like there's a lot more consistency on that? That's a great question. And it ties into a kind of a wider theme of something I'm going through at the minute, which is just <laughs> learning about the cultural differences between the US <laughs> and the UK, which is they are greater than I thought, actually, in some senses. So the language is the same, and actually, to be honest, the origins, right? Yeah, absolutely. Are, are sort of rooted. Uh, the language the is not as similar as you think. <laughs> <laughs> there are many words you guys use which just do not exist in the UK, which is, uh, and my kids seem to be adopting the word trash instead oh, really? of rubbish now, which okay. is, which is quite amusing. Um, to answer your question, I think interesting for me when I came here, I've got an interesting story. So I was at an exhibition, a trade show, and uh, we have very cool little business cards which have an avatar of my face. And the lady that I was speaking to, she she wasn't dismissive, but she yeah, I kind of got the impression she didn't want to talk to me. And then she kind of like, well, you know, tell me about background. And I don't have a job title on my card. We've not, none of our, our team have job titles. 
And she said, tell me a bit, like, you know, how did the company start? And I said, oh, I started the company 10 years ago. And she went, wait, you're the, you're the founder? And I said, oh, yeah, I founded the company. And she's like, you, you should put that on your business card. And I said, uh, okay. She's like, that's a really big deal over here. And this was about a month after moving to the US. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really think much of it. And then fast forward a couple of months, so we were at dinner at, at friends of my, uh, my eldest son. And... They're two doctors, right? He is an orthopedic surgeon and the lady is a pediatric, you know, really physicians, right? Like really, really intelligent, <laughs> smart people. And we were talking about what they do. And then I kind of in person said, oh, you know, I founded a business. And the reaction to that, they were like, what, you, you founded the company? And what has been really interesting for me is how celebrated and how well received being a start, a founder, mm. an entrepreneur is in the US. Mm. And I don't know if that's actually US or it's an East Coast thing, but that's been really fascinating because I've never had that. And the UK in particular does have an entrepreneurial spirit, but it's not given the same level of credibility that I've seen in the US. And I think that ties back to the, the whole biotech thing and actually... I just think there's a greater desire to try things in the US. Whereas mm. I think it, certainly in the UK, I can't speak for the rest of Europe, but it's probably relevant in say Scandinavia. There's probably a little bit more of a, a more cautious, mm. risk averse, dare I say, polite way <laughs> of, of starting businesses and, and not trying too much too soon. Whereas what I see in the US, certainly from the entrepreneurial and biotech industry is a lot of desire to try new things and when people fail here, it doesn't seem to be a big deal, mm-hmm. which I think is good. And it kind of gets people to push themselves off and try something new. So I think the entrepreneurial spirit that I see in the East Coast uh, amongst the life science space is, is really, really encouraging yeah. and can only be a good thing. Uh, and I, I imagine, I know you've got links with San Francisco and in the West Coast, and I imagine it's similar and, you know, with Silicon Valley. And I think the more smart, innovative people that want to try and move the needle come mm-hmm. into the industry, I think the better for everyone. I think that's something that we've always pride ourselves on and on this side of the Atlantic around both entrepreneurship, but then also being able to create the environment and the ecosystem within which folks can succeed. But I think maybe coming back to one of the earlier points you had brought up around how the life sciences industry tends to be a little bit of a laggard from a technology perspective because of both regulation and just conservatism. I'd imagine that might also sort of extend into the entrepreneurial component, especially when you juxtapose tech versus biotech as well, right? But, you know, in that regard, what, what I'd love to do is learn a little bit about some of the areas where you've spent a lot of time, namely the, the contract services space, especially working with contract research organizations, contract manufacturing organizations, et cetera. And maybe a good place to start is if you could just give us a quick overview of the contract services space, its activities, its role in the broader life sciences community, and, and then we can go from there. Sure, yeah. I mean, just for, I suppose for background, I mean, the outsourcing contract services space kind of, I think, had its origins in the in the 70s, early 80s, where big pharma companies kind of worked out that actually we're not going to spend half a billion dollars building a new facility on a drug product that probably won't work. So we're going to outsource it to contract manufacturer, which is, is very commonplace in other industries like food and automotive. And then certainly in the manufacturing side, I can't remember the year, but it was early 2000s or late 90s. There was a, a change in regulation around kind of good manufacturing practice, which really seemed to explode the contract services space. And when I say contract services, it refers to the outsourcing vendor space, which sits behind a lot of these drug development companies. So covers contract research organizations, clinical research organizations, tech companies, manufacturers, packaging companies, anyone that is supporting the delivery of a drug product, whether it's for clinical trials or whether it's for commercial product and all the support services that go with that as well. And one thing that I think, going back to the previous point about biotech companies, one thing I've really seen firsthand here in Cambridge is how lean a lot of these businesses are Mm -hmm. and how much they outsource. Mm -hmm. They outsource everything. You know, it's not 
uncommon for a biotech company to be half a dozen people, mm-hmm. almost like a virtual company. So you have, you know, a CEO, a biology expert, a CMC expert, maybe a couple of consultants, and then well-funded pot of cash, which they then use mm-hmm. to take their product through preclinical to phase one or phase two and you know, increase their funding along that journey. But they will use a multitude of service providers and vendors, and mm. that outsourcing market continues to grow. More and more kind of drug candidates get developed. It's going to continue to fuel mm. the outsourcing market. And we're seeing really interesting trends in the sector Particularly in the kind of an area that we we spend a lot of time is the kind of development and manufacturing space mm-hmm. between these big one-stop shop companies. So companies like Lonza, Catalent, mm-hmm. like multi-billion-dollar big companies, mm-hmm. um, client of ours, Resi Farm in Sweden, who are a you know fantastic company, and then you know offer all kinds of drug development services from early stage development all the way to late stage commercial manufacturing all over the world. And then that's very much contrasted versus a lot of these kind of specialist technology companies. So as we've moved more towards uh, kind of precision and personalized medicines, and obviously like the gene and cell therapy space, super right. hot topic right now, um, that require a certain technology or specialism that a lot of these big companies don't have, mm-hmm. although they're buying, <laughs> they're yeah. acquiring, you know, they're acquiring these companies for, you know, lots of money. But it's actually led to a really interesting part of the market, which is a lot of these smaller specialist players who might be in, in manufacturing, have a particular technology right. that, um, say, that supports oncology drugs or a particular manufacturing program process like sterile and seeing these companies evolve and grow has been quite fascinating so it's a really interesting time in the outsourcing space and it'll be interesting to see how that moves uh, you know the reducing complexity thing that we talked about before yeah that it's really interesting you hear that come up as much amongst the outsourcing space in addition to the, the drug development space there seems to be a real appetite to collaborate and find ways to reduce complexity and make yeah. it as easy as possible to get drugs to market and through clinical trials and safely. It certainly sounds like, you know, this new mode of drug development that you referenced relies heavily on collaboration, right? So I guess maybe one of the two things to help anchor, you know, my own knowledge, but perhaps also the audience's as well is, can you give us a sense of how big, whether it be in terms of dollars or number of people or number of institutions, the contract services space is for the pharmaceutical industry? And then secondly, when we think about life sciences, it's obviously one that is rooted in intellectual property and know-how and scientific expertise. How outsourcing, which is traditionally viewed in the broader world as low cost, etc., how that plays a role in developing new knowledge and IP for these sorts of companies. So yeah, I'd love to learn those two things. Sure. I mean, in terms of the size, it's a really complicated sector because the way the market is fragmented from research manufacturing packaging so i'm i think it's probably quite difficult to give one particular figure but certainly for the contract development and manufacturing space so think of api manufacturers and finished dosage forms so the guys actually making the drug product that's growing quickly and it's kind of estimated to be valued at 92 billion dollars was the last wow kind of number that i came across and it's growing at six to seven percent um and it's expected to kind of grow in the next few years as well so i mean that piece of the market alone is global and and huge right mm-hmm. and then equally you will have the clinical research of the big cro companies and that particular marketplace as well so it is a i'm going to say hundreds <laughs> i'm going to predict it's probably hundreds of billions of dollars across the global sector and to your second point it's a really interesting question because i'm flying to taiwan for a new client of ours who is a contract development manufacturing company based in that part of the world and 
what's been really interesting in the last few years is there's been a real shift towards driving costs down, particularly for API and generic drug products, which has led to India and China becoming superpowers in the sector as mm-hmm. well. But there's also been quality issues. I mean, India in particular, mm-hmm. I mean, there was a story last week, actually, there was one in a plant in India where someone had, had passed away or a couple of people had died because of a fire or something like the health and safety systems, the sophistication of the systems is not like it is in Europe yet. So there's this weird kind of bounce back that we're seeing and that I'm hearing and that, <laughs> that people have outsourced to go cheap and be like, actually, it's not worth it. Yeah, yeah. And they're coming back to the US and to Europe. Mm. But then there's a couple of interesting markets like Korea in Taiwan who have very, very strong manufacturing, yep. credible manufacturing heritages. Yep. And to a lesser extent, Japan, but Japanese is a, an expensive place to do business. So there is a desire to get the same level of quality, but necessarily potentially at a, at a lower cost. But this isn't kind of like 10% of the cost. It's you know, 70% or 80% of the cost. But still getting that sense of we're going to get the right quality at the right time. But it's a really interesting one because, you know, because there is a lot of finance in the sector, which drives up the price of everything because everyone knows that the drug developers are well-funded, whether they're yeah. pharma companies or this really interesting kind of conundrum, right? Where they kind of, <laughs> it's like a standoff, like we know you've got the money. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's almost like the type of sector where too cheap is not necessarily a good thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what the last thing you want is to be, you know, if it's your, you know, your wife or your kids taking something that's been knocked up without, you know, for a fraction of the price, but not in the same quality standards. I don't think yeah. anyone anywhere in the world wants that to happen. So I don't think the drive on price is as aggressive as you might see in, say, the food ingredients sector, right, right. whereas we've had clients as well. I don't think it's as aggressive as, as that sector. Does that answer you? Yeah, totally. It certainly seems that in the context of drug manufacturing that, again, you're not optimizing for the lowest cost bidder. Yeah. You're optimizing perhaps for the best partner and I think the other piece is also technological capability sure. is, and know-how is probably a piece of it too, I'd imagine, right? Absolutely, Because yeah. um, it's interesting that you cite the this sort of virtual biotech, you know, half a dozen people. You've got a CEO, a CMC expert, a bio expert, and then a couple consultants to support. And it's interesting because 20 years ago, that would be not a half a dozen people, but perhaps... 600 people Mm -hmm. to do the same program. But that's because all the manufacturing was done in-house. All the development work was done in-house, right? And so I think the other thread there that you sort of touched upon is institutions in places like India and China, the EU, Taiwan, Korea, elsewhere, have core Mm know-how that can be plug and played into perhaps some of these these virtual companies or smaller companies to give them scale rapidly and on demand. Absolutely. Is that a good way to think about it? Yeah, no, I think that's a really good kind of summary and, and synopsis of, of exactly what's kind of going on at the minute. And what I love about working in this sector, I have to say, is is one of the reasons I ended up in this sector was just, I love how global it is, right? I mm. love the impact this sector has on every person in the world. Mm-hmm. And it's very normal in this sector to be working with companies, you know, in Europe and in Asia and in, you know, over on the West Coast. And I do think that's a huge benefit of being in a, in a truly global sector but you know going back to some of the things that we talked about at the start it needs to evolve it needs to get smarter and it's not necessarily cutting costs because when you were talking before about the expertise versus the capabilities i mean it's value at the end of the day you know pricing is it's not about the lowest cost it's about value and we'll do research with our clients customers and say you know why did you choose these guys mm-hmm. it's not because they were the cheapest is because they had the right technology. They've got the expertise. They've got the capacity. They've got the capability. And there's the chemistry fit, the cultural fit. In any business transaction, 
that cultural fit and chemistry thing as is important as anything I can look you in the eye and know that you're going to deliver for me and so I think that's irrespective of international borders whoever you're working with having being able to tick the capability boxes is one thing but actually being able to trust the partner at the other end that you're actually going to deliver when you said you're going to deliver I don't think the biotech and pharma sector is different to any other sector in that sense that it's still predominantly business to business transactions which are based on people in trust which is super important across everything especially when you're dealing with medicines that are going to end up going into patients that that's a serious level of trust (laughs) yeah yeah I often describe it as a a high stakes right scenario and it's large dollars but small volume, sure. right? Even the biggest pharmaceutical companies don't bring 100 medicines to market every year. They bring maybe, you know, one to three, right? And I think it's one of those scenarios where because you're doing small volume and there's so much riding on each one being successful, you're going to want to go with trust, I guess. Exactly. Right? In that yeah. regard, yeah. the necessary cost. In the broader contract services domain, I think you've touched upon this a moment ago. What are some of the key trends that you're starting to see as this industry evolves? As this shift from a vertically integrated pharmaceutical company transitions to these nimble, agile, entrepreneurial organizations, what are some of the trends you're seeing in the contract services space that uh, you think the broader audience should be mindful of? That's a great question. And I think one of the things it's worth kind of before going into the contract services space is actually it seems a very favorable regulatory environment right now. So we've seen, particularly for biotech companies, we've seen some of these gene therapy and cell therapy products be approved and come to market and they're actually being delivered to patients now and we have got an interesting personal story there actually which is my niece had leukemia several years ago in a in a hospital in in northeast england and you know thankfully uh, she she overcame it but there was another child who was on the ward at the same time who actually didn't he wasn't as lucky right and he ended up uh, passing away a few years later and we have clients that are involved in that gene therapy space and when one of the products came to market last year it was the particular hospital in northeast England where I'm from, where my uh, niece was actually treated, is now being used in treating patients and children on a day-to-day basis. And what's quite fascinating is actually when you work in the sector every day, you often just forget about mm-hmm. the impact. And it was a really interesting one for me in life generally that you know I spend my entire <laughs> you know living day and sleep thinking about this sector and watching it go when you know the regulatory environment changes and these biotech companies are bringing these therapies to market and actually seeing it impact people on your doorstep and especially children on your doorstep like I think that is a really interesting part of what's happening right now and I think that's then driving the contract services space I see a lot more communication between the regulators in different parts of the world now to try and harmonize the way drugs are approved so you know might the FDA working with the MHRA in the UK for instance and that's a really positive thing I think the alignment of those that makes drugs easier to market mm globally and not just in one particular territory and that's that's having an impact on the contract services spaces because it's where do we make the drugs you know where they're going to get packaged where are they going to get so the kind of going back to the globalization side of things it's key for contract services providers to have not just facilities but actually teams and expertise in different territories to be able to actually support these clients and bring the products to market as as Mm. quick and safely as possible so i think we all want to see more drugs come to market albeit patient safety at the top of that um that are going to help improve patient outcomes that are currently not met or the, the medications on the market are not being met I think, um, you know, if I sort of hear you correctly, I think a big part of what some of the trends are, you know, maybe to pair it back, is one, an aspect of speed. Second is an aspect of new modalities that are transforming how we treat historically critical diseases to flexibility, 
especially with its market access Absolutely, or whatever it might yeah. be. And it sounds like the contract services domain is starting to align with said expectations that their customers, the biopharmaceutical companies yeah. and patients ultimately need. Is that about right? Yeah, no, that's it. That's it. Again, you seem to be much better at me than summarize, <laughs> summarizing my points. And uh, no, I think that's very accurate. And I think certainly in the contract services space, the ones that will survive and thrive will be the ones that are able to adapt to the kind of changing market environment like in any sector. I was, it just, it's funny when you mentioned speed there, I was at an event recently and there was a guy on the panel he said something like, companies should be less concerned with failing fast and more concerned with succeeding slower, <laughs> which I thought was a really interesting uh, way of, of putting it, that actually if we took the pressure off the speed a little bit, chances of success would go up, which is, I just thought was a really interesting point because there's a lot of, you hear, you know, fail fast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's not it's not, not just, for, that's, you know, very prominent in the entrepreneurial space, right? Like, yep. you, know, you know, build something and if it works, great. If not, chuck it in the trash and start again. And I do think there's some sense, there's a real kind of sensible mindset around actually going slightly slower and actually working closer in collaboration. And collaboration seems to be a word that we hear more and more. Every conference I go to, it always seems to be one of the great buzzwords. You know, vendors working more collaboratively with the, the sponsors who are working more collaboratively with the CROs and in turn the patients to try and work together in a way that brings better treatments to market. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Well, Ramon, thank you so much for being on the podcast today and we look forward to checking in as you offered in a few years as both your company evolves in the industry and, and reviewing it at that time. Oh, thanks very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Alok Tai. It's produced by Jean Merlin, edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Biotech 2050 Pod. Until next time. <laughs>